Uh, good morning. My name's Dan. If this is the first time we've met, uh, as uh, was said before, we're going through a series at the moment on Revelation chapters 2 and 3, these letters to the churches that Jesus himself has spoken to these seven churches in the ancient world. Today we come to Smyrna. Last week was Ephesus and we saw they were a church that was big on truth but small on what? Do you remember? Love. love. That's right. We need to be on about both. Full on truth, full on love. We're going to see another thing that Jesus says to the church in Smyrna this week and to us. But we need the Lord's help to hear his word rightly, don't we? So how about we pray? Oh dear Lord God, I'm mindful that just as Jeanette has read, um, he who has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, Lord, I pray for those among us who do have such an ear, who have a heart ready to receive your word and, and a mind renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, to be able to trust in Jesus and cling to him and follow him. Lord, I pray for the many among us in that situation that this morning would be a great encouragement, uh, that it would spur them on in the faith. And Lord, for those among us who... Uh, do not have such an ear who are perhaps here to investigate or are unsure of the things of Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give them an ear this morning to hear, uh, to understand what it is that you are saying right to them through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, kids, have you been wondering what's under this sheet at the front here? <laughs> Make sure you're looking. I'm about to uncover it. Here we go. Tell me if you know what this is. Can you see it? Do you know what this is? This is a juicer. And I have here a glass. <laughs> now, a juicer has one job and one job only, and that is complete destruction, right? But at least when it comes to fruit. So the way that a juicer works, I've got my oranges here, and I've got my glass here. Hopefully it doesn't fall. This juicer is a bit crazy, I will warn you. You get your oranges... You put them down here in this little slot. Very important, you then get this piece of plastic, this solid bit here. It's got spikes on the bottom. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to press it down in this slot here. You ready? I want you to watch what happens. Now, this juicer is not a great one. It tends to bounce around everywhere. Whoop, there we go. <laughs> Now, did, did you hear the sound, kids, of the, the orange getting crushed in there? That's all we got. <laughs> Does anyone want some orange juice? Oh, there's a bit more coming. There we go. <laughs> I suppose I can't, probably from a risk assessment point of view, I can't be seen to be like serving juice, can I? So, if that's for me. That's good. I'll put that there so it catches the rest of it. Um, now, good process, isn't it? You get the orange, you put it in, you get fresh juice. There's nothing like fresh juice, is there? It's a great process as long as you're not the orange, of course. <laughs> because if you're the orange, your contribution to the process is getting crushed. You get pulverized. You get the, the juice squeezed out of you. And I want you to take a look here at Revelation chapter 2. This is what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, verse 8. If you don't have your Bible in front of you, take a look at it here. I want you to see these words. To the angel of the church or the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. This is Jesus who's speaking. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your what? Tribulation. Tribulation. 
Now, that's not a word we use all that often, is it? You don't ask someone, how was your week? And they go, oh, it was pure tribulation. Like, that's someone who's just a bit too much into the book of Revelation, to my mind. Tribulation, though, it comes from a Greek word. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. It's the word flipsis. Have a go at saying that. Flipsis. If you've got a lisp, like I have a, a slight lisp, it's very hard to say. Flipsis. And it means the burden that crushes. Uh, and actually, the etymology of this word, like the background of it, is uh, it's to do with olive crushing. So if you had some olives on your property that you were growing, you would take them to a guy perhaps on a Friday and, and say, I, I want to turn this into oil. He'd have a big millstone like the thing on the right there. He'd get your olives and he'd pulverize them. He'd crush them. He'd run the wheel over them again and again and again until all the olives, like the oil of the olives is, is all squeezed out. So they're pulverized and it's kind of they're getting the life crushed out of them. That's flipsis. And the church at Smyrna knew a thing or two about flipsis, about tribulation, about getting the life crushed out of them. They suffered because of their faith in Jesus. And I want to show you where the pressure came from. Have a look at verse 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the city of Smyrna and then, then fill out where this pressure is coming from. Here's a picture of modern day Smyrna. It's actually called Izmir. It's in Turkey. Uh, of the seven letters in Revelation, Smyrna is the one city that's actually stuck around to today. All the rest are ruins, but you can go and visit Izmir. Uh, it's the third largest city in Turkey. And right in the middle of it actually is like this, this open archaeological site where you can see old Smyrna. So you can see some of the pillars from the temples and things like that. Now, back in uh, Jesus, or rather in the, the time of Revelation, Smyrna was not only a big city, it was like it vied for the, the title of the first in Asia. They thought they were the best. So they competed with Ephesus that we saw last week. It was not only a big city, it was also a diverse city. It had lots of different people groups, lots of different religious groups. And among them was a significant Jewish population. Right? They had sort of spread from when the temple was destroyed about 20 years earlier. And, and many of them had ended up here in Smyrna. Now, the Jewish population being sizable here, they didn't particularly like the Christians in Smyrna. Now, why was that? Well, the reason is fairly obvious. We as Christians believe that Jesus is God, right? He actually says himself here, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the uncreated one, the one who lives forever, who died and returned to life. That's God. He's the son of God. But of course, our Jewish friends don't believe that. Uh, they believe that Jesus was maybe a prophet or maybe a good teacher, but certainly not God. Certainly not the Messiah, certainly not the Saviour. And so here in AD 90, there are a whole lot of people that are becoming Christians. Some of them were Jewish. So John the Apostle, who wrote this letter that, that received the vision from Jesus, he was Jewish, right? So he left the ranks and he'd gone to worship Jesus, to trust in the Messiah. And of course, the Jewish population in Smyrna don't like the looks of that. They're losing people to Christianity. But more than that, right... They're losing people to become blasphemers. These people are worshipping a false god. 
I mean, you, you can understand their zeal, right? If you have a little bit of empathy to put yourself in their shoes. The, the people who are leaving us to become Christians, they're disobeying the first commandment. Worship God alone. And the second commandment, don't bow down to idols. We're doing both of those things in bowing down to Jesus. And so their response to that is to persecute the Christians in Smyrna. Uh, One of the people that they persecuted actually is this man here, Polycarp. You may have heard of him. Uh, He is a a famous Christian in the early church era. He was actually the Bishop of Smyrna. So he was like a a high-ranking Christian leader. And the Jewish community in Smyrna, uh, one day they got Polycarp. They sort of arrested him. Um, They got him in trouble with the Romans. And what they did was they grabbed him, they tied him to a stake. Right? This is really confronting. This happened to a Christian brother of ours. They tied him to a snake. They gathered up wood, got fiery torches. And uh, this was, by the way, happening on the Sabbath, if that tells you anything about their zeal to do this thing. They gathered the wood, the torches, they burnt him. They burnt him alive. So this is what happened to Christians in Smyrna. And all of this shows really that the Jews there were not really God's people, right? They claimed to be, but really they were opposing God. They were opposing his Messiah. They were opposing Jesus' people. And they had actually another strategy up their sleeve as well. It wasn't just that they directly opposed the Christians. They also got the Romans on side with them. Here's the other thing you need to know about Smyrna. Really religious, a deeply religious city. Here's a little picture here. On the left, you can see um, sort of the bust of, of one of the emperors. Under that is a picture of a temple. And this is one of the temples that the Smyrnans would go and worship. They would worship the whole suite of Roman gods. But in particular, they would worship the Roman emperor. So many of these coins would be a, a little saying that would say, you know, um, Caesar, son of God, or Tiberius, son of God. And the, the Smyrnans took that very seriously. They really worshipped the emperor as if he was a god. In fact, there was one point in history where uh, 12 different cities were, were sort of given this challenge. If you can worship the emperor with the most zeal and the most passion, we will give you the right to build a, temp- a, a, a temple to Emperor Tiberius in your city. And do you know who won? The city of Smyrna. They were the most zealous worshippers. Now, um, at this time, the Jewish community in Smyrna were exempt from having to worship the emperor. Now, how does that work? Well, they sort of had this political deal because they were big enough that they could throw their weight around. Uh, And so they said, we won't cause any troubles for the Roman Empire if you just let us worship our God and not the emperor. And the the benefit of that for Christians was they look enough like Jews, right? They have sort of this scripture. They worship a God called Yahweh. So, okay, they kind of look like Jews and they just fell under the same agreement as well. Imagine then if you're a Jewish sort of zealot, and you want to get the Christians in trouble, what do you have to do? All you have to do is say, oh, they're not with us. Those guys, they're they're not part of us. They believe something different. They worship a different God, and they are against Rome. So that's what they do. And now the Christians are all in trouble. In fact, Christianity becomes illegal in Smyrna as a result of this move. Worship the emperor or die. That's tribulation, isn't it? That's flipsis, the burden that crushes, which is also part of a reason why 
The Christians in Smyrna face poverty, as it says in verse 9. Jesus says, I know not only your tribulation, your flipsis, the crushing weight, but also your poverty. Now, he also says in brackets there, you're rich, right? They have eternal life. No one can take that from them. Truly, they're rich, but in a worldly sense, they have nothing. And part of the reason for that is, if it's illegal to be a Christian and someone finds out that you're a Christian, then what does that mean? It's, it's open season, isn't it? They can do whatever they want with you. So kids, imagine you've got your, your Nintendo Switch at home next to your TV. Someone can come into your house and, and grab it. I'm not saying they'll do this today, but back in, back in this time, they come and they grab your Nintendo Switch and they say, I want this, this is going to be mine. And you say, well, no, 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 you can't take that. I'll say, well, I'll tell everyone you're a Christian. And then you and your parents, they're going to go to jail. <gasps> so they can just take your Nintendo Switch and take it for themselves. And they can do that with anything that's in your house. They can get you fired from your job. What are you going to do about it? Hey, this is religious persecution. What about free speech? Yeah, yeah, right. That's not going to go so well for you. So this is the situation for the Christians in Smyrna. It's tribulation. It's poverty. And then take a look at verse 10. Some of them are even being thrown into prison. And this isn't like here in Australia where prisons can be pretty cushy and where you know they're basically aimed at rehabilitation. They want to make you a better citizen. They want to put you back out into society. Well, no, here in Smyrna, the primary reason that prisons exist is that you'd be put there just waiting for your day of execution. Like the reason you're in prison is just so the, the governors can set a date for when you're going to die. That's the situation for the Smyrna Christians. They're being put in prison and some of them are going to die. So they've got enemies who are hunting them down. They're facing poverty. They have nothing. Some of them are being imprisoned. Some of them are facing death. How would you feel if you were part of this church? Have a think about it. How would you feel if that was the unrelenting pressure that you're facing day after day after day simply because you're a Christian? How would you feel? Now, today, some people kind of just slide into the Christian faith. You know what I mean? Like they, they grew up with it, their parents were Christians, and they just sort of, they end up just going to church. They just kind of slide into it. Or maybe they, they like the idea of church community. Uh, there was a bloke I know who um, at one point wanted to come to our church, and I asked him, oh, so what are you looking for in a church? And he just said, oh, yeah, I want to meet a partner. This is an older bloke. And I said, is that really just the reason why you want to come? Yeah, that's the reason I want to Okay, don't come to our church, please. <laughs> you know, um, and he didn't. He, he just moved on and did something else. Um, some people do come along just to kind of meet friends or find love or have morning tea, have a good time. They kind of like being cared for and noticed. And okay, like, yes, in a church community, you'll find those things. But they end up just kind of sliding into the Christian faith. They're not really a Christian. They're just around. Now, could you do that in Smyrna? Not a chance. No way. If you're in, you're all in. Because you could literally lose your life for faith in Jesus. That from every angle, the city of Smyrna is, is like a machine built for destruction of Christians, right? Now, what is Jesus going to say to them? What is Jesus going to say to these people who are under the burden that crushes for their faith? What does he say to our brothers and sisters overseas who are in this situation right now? 
What does he say to us? Now, we don't suffer and struggle like this, do we? At least I hope that you don't feel quite this way about your faith in Jesus yet. But it's changing, isn't it? The world is changing. This could happen here. Uh, There was a guy, an Australian pastor, who uh, wrote this book. Have you read it before, Being the Bad Guys? This is a, a, he's a, a pastor who lives over in WA, Stephen McAlpine. Really helpful book. If you haven't read it, it's not long. It's only 100, 150 pages. Really readable. Give it a go. Uh, he, his central thesis is basically that uh, at one point, the church in Australian society, he's an Aussie, so he's writing in Australian society, the church was considered good. We were the good guys, right? So you'd send your kids to Sunday school. If you've been around long enough, you might remember those days. Uh, and, and the church was generally considered to be a force for good. It would do good things in community. It would be trusted as a source and authority for truth. And that's very much in the past, isn't it? It has then gone in more recent years from the church being good, like one of the good guys, to now just one of the guys. So it's, it's one voice at a big table with lots of different perspectives. Think postmodernism. Think plurality. Okay, so you've got Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, secular atheism, lots of different voices at the table. And, and Christians can be at the table as long as they don't make any exclusive truth claims. So as long as you don't say you're the one voice that matters, then okay, you have a place at the table. So we were one of the guys, one of the voices. But even that has changed more recently. And I think Stephen McAlpine is right about this in that now, generally speaking, in the popular consciousness, the church is now viewed as the bad guys. We aren't just one of the guys. We're a voice that needs to be silenced. And not everyone will say this, but if you get in a conversation with someone who's not a Christian, you start talking about things like sin. You start talking about things like how we are, we are not inherently good. We are inherently set against God. We are actually inherently evil and broken. You start talking about things like God's judgment and hell. You start talking about Jesus' views on sexual ethics right? You start talking about how actually there really is only one truth and it's what Jesus says. You start talking about those things and then you're going to feel it, okay? People view us as the bad guys, as a voice that is actually harmful and that needs to be silenced. Things are changing. We lived in a world that once embraced Christianity and then tolerated it and now generally wants to get rid of it. And at the moment, we haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, as I think Hebrews puts it. But the time may well come. And so what does Jesus say to us as we find ourselves in this changing world that things are probably going to get harder for us? Is it worth it to keep going? How do I do it? Well, there's two things we need to hear. They're right here in the passage. Two things. These two things kept Smyrna in the game. They keep our brothers and sisters overseas in the game. They'll keep us in the game as well. Now, kids, I'm going to put these two phrases up on the screen. And I want you to remember these two phrases. These are the big two things we need to remember, okay? Don't be afraid. Instead, be faithful. If you're the type who writes things down, write this down. This is what's going to keep you in the game, according to Jesus. Don't be afraid. Instead, be faithful. And kids, you might even want to, as you're just listening to the rest of this sermon, come up with some actions if you can. 
How to, how to remember those words. You might think of an action for afraid or an action for faithful. What does faithful mean? Have a think about that. And you can show me some actions if you want afterwards. Come and show me them. And if you're a big kid who likes to move your body and, and do actions, you can come and show me too if you want it. All right? So don't be afraid. Instead, be faithful. That first one, verse 10, first, don't be afraid. Here's what Jesus says, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Hear that? Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, admittedly, it's a bit funny, isn't it, that Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then like literally the very next thing he does is list a whole lot of things that people would normally be afraid of. Prison, death. So if I were writing this, if I were thinking about, you know, what would I want to say, then I'd go, don't be afraid because you're not going to suffer. Everything's going to be totally okay. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He says, don't be afraid because you're about to suffer. The devil himself is going to throw you into prison. And isn't fear a totally normal response to these kind of things, to loss of freedom, to the, the possibility of harm and of losing your life? Now, there is such a thing as healthy fear, isn't there? Do you remember last week with that spider that was crawling along the ceiling? You remember that? It was right above Ross's head and I saw that moment where he was singing and he noticed, because I guess because people were looking up at it, and he looked up and just went like double take, like, oh. <laughs> like fear. But he kept going. I wouldn't have kept going. I would have just like jumped away. So most of us, when we see a spider or something that could hurt us, that's our response, right? It's a jump. We're not like Ross, who's brave. We, we jump away. <laughs> Uh, or, or if there's something that's dangerous in front of you, there's just that gut reaction to, to move away or, or, or to jump or, or to escape. And that's a normal reaction. God has given us that. Um, I think that's part of actually how he protects us from danger. It's just that normal sort of gut instinct reaction. And I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not, he's not saying, hey, learn to suppress that feeling of fear when something dangerous is in front of you. I don't think that's what he's saying. But there's a difference between being afraid, like, like that initial fear feeling, and letting fear control you. Like, for example, uh, Rosie is doing her HSC at the moment. Uh, she's just done her trials, and Jacob as well. Um, and both of them are about to sit their HSC exams in a matter of weeks. And when I say that, I'm sure, Rosie, you feel just a little bit of fear coming up for you. Uh, now, that's normal. In fact, that can be a good thing because that helps Rosie go, this is significant and I need to keep studying. Uh, but what wouldn't make a lot of sense if, is if Rosie or Jacob took that fear and then didn't study, right? Because they, they feel so afraid of this HSC exam that they, they can't even open their books. It just makes them feel horrible every time they do. So they stay away from the thing that they fear. Now, that would be counterproductive, wouldn't it? It'll just actually make the danger even worse. They'll get closer and closer to exam day. So take this on board, Rosie. I know you're very good at studying, so it's okay. But they'll get closer and closer, and it'll just get worse and worse because they'll be less and less prepared. I think kind of Jesus is giving the same picture here. Uh, he's saying that the emotion of fear is not an evil or a bad thing. It happens for all of us. It's normal. Don't feel guilty about feeling afraid, especially when it comes to suffering for your Christian faith. But do not let fear control you. Don't go on fearing would be another way of putting it. Don't let fear compel your actions. And one key to, to not letting fear control us is realizing 
that suffering will happen. It's inevitable. Every Christian who's a genuine Christian will suffer for their faith. As he says to the Christians in Smyrna, you're about to suffer. Some of you will be thrown into prison. It's coming. Because after all, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. I heard Noel's laugh. She knows what this verse is. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. I'm not putting this on the screen. I want you just to hear it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Kept safe? Comfortable? No, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what the Lord says to us. If you desire to be a godly Christian, to be on Jesus' side, to walk faithfully with Him, persecution is in your future. That's the reality. Accept it. Don't try and avoid it, wriggle out of it, blame someone, fight back. No, it's going to happen. Is that something that you can accept? That if you're a Christian, you will suffer for Christ. Is that something you can sit with? Because my observation is that sometimes people can't or won't accept that. And I can look back at times in my life where I've felt that way and where I've not accepted it. But sometimes people won't. And the alternative is, rather than sticking it out, they'll try to blend in with the world. Do you know what I mean? I'll try and look like the world so that they're sort of camouflaged. Their Christian faith doesn't make them stick out. I won't make waves. I'll, I'll agree with what everyone says. I'll just kind of keep my head down. And I, I unearthed this quote here from John Stott this week. And this is like a, an oof sort of quote. He says this, The ugly truth is that we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. That's the alternative. Either accept it and suffer or compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or purity or love. In other words, the world sees in us nothing to hate. And it's not like we go out to try and make people hate us, right? That's not the mission of Jesus. But at the same time, when we stand with Jesus, if people hate the things Jesus stands for, then there are going to be things they hate about us as well. And the reality is, it really just comes down to a simple choice. Will I go with Jesus and, and stick out in the world, or will I camouflage my faith in Jesus so that I stick in with the world? And the first way is hard and sometimes fearful, but the second way is compromising who God created and saved us to be, isn't it? And Jesus says, don't fear the world. Don't let this kind of fear run you so that you compromise on your godliness and you compromise on your status as a disciple of Jesus. Don't fear the suffering. Accept it. Don't let it control you. And instead, he gives us this encouragement. He says to the church in Smyrna, at least, he knows exactly what they're about to suffer. He knows. None of it takes him by surprise. Jesus knows precisely what's going to happen. Remember in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Remember, this is the Son of God who walks among the seven lampstands, who sees everything that happens in and among his church. But not just in the present. 
He also knows the suffering that is going to come in the future. That's why he can say the devil's going to throw you into prison and some of you are going to die. He knows what's going to happen because after all, isn't he the first and the last? The alpha and the omega? He knows all things. But even more than that, he's in control. Now, verse 10 doesn't sound like he's in control, does it? The devil's going to throw some of you into prison. You're going to be tested. But notice two things. First, there's a purpose to this time. You will be tested. Now, when someone's tested, there's an opportunity for them to prove something. And I want you to think. Think back to when you were at school and you had your teachers and kids. Think about your teachers at the moment. Did your teachers want you to fail your tests? No, I hope not. (laughs) When I was a teacher, I certainly didn't want the kids that I was teaching to fail. Um, I taught Rosie. Um, I taught... uh, Lauren's not in here right now. I taught Lauren's brother. Um, and, uh, And I didn't want them to fail the test. Even the naughty kids, I didn't want them to fail. I wanted them to succeed. And so I did everything I could to try and support them, right? That's the role of a test. It's an opportunity for someone... To, to pass, to succeed, to make it through. And, and a good teacher prepares them for that. All of that to say, who's testing the Christians in Smyrna? Is it the devil who's throwing them into prison? Does he want them to succeed? Does he want them to grow? Does he want them to make it through? Certainly not. He's not preparing them to face the test. He wants them to fail, right? The devil doesn't test. He tempts. He tempts. He tries to pull people off the path. But God doesn't tempt. He tests. He wants people to succeed, to equip them, to support them, to give them everything they need to make it through. And in this case, he ordains this time of testing, even though it's severe, to prove really that nothing can stop the gospel, right? That's the message of the Smyrna Church for us today. Nothing can stop the gospel of God. You can squeeze, you can push, you can pulverize, you can crush the life out of the people of God, but the gospel won't bend or break. God's word will never fail. It will always last to the end of the age. And he wants the Christians in Smyrna to see that. He wants us to see that. So he has ordained, he is in control of this time of testing, right? So rather than letting fear control them, the church in Smyrna needs to know that God is in control. Another sign of that is at the very end of of verse 10, uh, the sentence there, how long will this tribulation last? Have a look. What's it say? Ten days. Ten days. days. And like many things in Revelation, this is symbolic. Uh, It's not saying that they're going to be in prison for about a week and a half and then, great, everything's hunky-dory. No. Uh, The the number 10 in Revelation usually means completeness, finality, sort of like a, a fixed period of time. And so what God is saying here is... This is just going to be a time of suffering. It's going to be severe. It's going to go for a while, but it's going to stop. Jesus has set an end point for it. It's a time of testing, not a a whole lifetime, but a time of testing. God's fixed an end point. And I sometimes wonder, this is an interesting question, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in the God that we've been talking about, you you don't trust in Jesus, then what do you do when severe suffering comes? Like, how do you bear up under it? And I don't mean just when life is pretty easy or, you know, I've got to downplay something here, but, yeah, your girlfriend breaks up with you or, or you don't quite get the job you went for or whatever. I know those are significant things, but I mean when there's real suffering, when it's like 
your life is at threat, where, where it's like your very identity is at stake. That's what these things are, right? In those times, how do you bear up if there's no bigger story to it? If there isn't a God who's actually in control of these things, who's actually, who knows the future and is actually ordained this time for your ultimate good and for his glory. How do you bear up under that, that kind of pressure where it's all down to you to try and make something of it? I don't understand it. I honestly don't. If you're not a Christian and, and you, know, you, you think of it as, come and talk about it. I'd love to understand how you deal with that. But, but for the, the Smyrna Christians, if you said that to them, they'd go, that just doesn't work. That doesn't help you. We're getting the life crushed out of us. We need to know that God's in control here. And he is. That's what stops us from being controlled by fear. It's knowing that Jesus has a plan. That he's with you during suffering. That he's working through suffering. That he set an end point for suffering. The world and Satan might oppose God's people, but God has the last word. If you know that, you do not need to be controlled by fear. And that might be whatever that fear might be when it comes to the Christian faith. It might be, for example, that you fear your character being torn down because people think that you're a bigot. It might be your reputation shot through because people find out what you believe. It might just be that your savings account is diminishing, going backwards compared to your non-Christian peers. Because you're giving and giving, you're being sacrificial. It might be that your friends reject you because you can't go along with some of the things that they're doing. It might be that your mind is burdened. You're struggling to stay asleep at night because when it comes to your kids or your grandkids, you're not just worried about their education and their health. You're worried about their faith. And it keeps you up and you're praying for them. Right? Whatever it is, that, that, that kind of suffering that you might fear, Jesus says you don't need to. That fear doesn't need to control you. Even if it's bigger costs, the loss of freedoms, prison, even death, Jesus is in control. And since this fear doesn't control us, we're free to do something different. Kids, tune in with me here. What was that second phrase? It was, do not fear, instead what? Be Faithful, yes. Instead, be faithful. Read the rest of verse 10. Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And just notice here, Jesus doesn't say, Have enough faith. He's not talking about a quantity of faith, okay? He's talking about being faithful. And there is a difference. Uh, the, the Christian life begins with faith in Jesus, doesn't it? Right? We, we cling to him, trust in him, and his finished work at the cross. In fact, the Christian life is entirely sustained by faith in Jesus. It's not just the first point, it's the last point and every point in between. We trust in the Lord Jesus, having taken our sin on the cross, having taken God's judgment on our behalf, having risen from the dead to give us the Holy Spirit new life. Right? Begins and ends with faith in Jesus. But just as we have begun and end by faith in Jesus, we then walk faithfully. When we have faith in Jesus, it changes our life. We begin to live in a different way. We repent of sin. As we talked about last week, we chuck a U-turn, right? Remember and repent. That's what he said to Ephesus. And so we walk faithfully with Jesus. We stick to him. Think about a marriage. A faithful marriage is one where both partners are committed to each other and they don't walk away to other partners. 
That's what Jesus is talking about here. You start with faith, you end with faith, and all throughout, a Christian is faithful. And he says here, be faithful even to the point of death. Stick with Jesus even if you have to pay the ultimate price. And there's a reward to those who remain faithful. Jesus promises, what does he say? Have a look. He says, I will give you, ready for it? I will give you a hat. Seriously? Well, not seriously. A crown. I will give you the crown of life. Two pictures for you here. On the left, classic crown. The sort of thing the queen would wear. Royalty, dignity, all of that. That's probably not, though, what the Christians in Smyrna were thinking of when they heard crown. They were probably thinking the thing on the right. That's uh, what we call a laurel or a victory crown. And you'd receive that when, uh, during the Roman Games, think like the Olympic Games, you, you won the, the highest honour, you, you won the race, you won the event, whatever. Or if you were a really good citizen in a Roman city, they'd give you like the civic crown, which looked the same, the same way. You, you were a really good servant, you were faithful to the city of, of the empire of Rome. That's what would come to their mind. In fact, in Smyrna, they hosted these Roman games quite often. They were known for it. So the thing that comes to their mind that Jesus must mean when he says crown to them is a victor's crown to the one that conquers, to the one that makes it through, to the servant who keeps serving not the Roman Empire, but Jesus' empire, the kingdom of God, to the servant who is faithful, I will give the crown, the victor's crown. But there's extra detail as well. It is the victor's crown of life. Now, another way of understanding that, and I think the right way of understanding it, is it is the crown which is life. I think that's the way that that phrase works. It's like the crown equals life. So it is the crown of life with God, or the crown of life in all its fullness, or the crown of life forever joyful in God's presence. That's what he's promising. Be faithful even unto death, because when you make it through, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will grant you eternal life. The victor's crown, you've made it through, now you get the reward of living with him forever. And this is a massive motivation for any suffering Christian. In fact, it motivated Jesus himself. Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 12, I'll put this on the screen for you. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What is it that kept Jesus going? What is it that kept him going when he faced the worst suffering, the worst tribulation, the worst flipsis that the world has ever known? The crushing weight of our sin upon his shoulders? Not only the physical pain of the cross from which we get our word excruciating, but also the spiritual pain of carrying the judgment of God when he himself had only ever known complete fellowship with God his Father as a member of the Trinity. What kept him going in that crushing burden? Only the joy set before him. The joy of life with God his Father, that would be his inheritance for being faithful unto death. The joy set before him, the resurrection life set before him is what enabled Jesus to face the cross. And here's the reality. 
Everyone who trusts in that cross work of Jesus has this life, that very same life to look forward to. As Jesus himself says back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Did you know that we'll, well, possibly some people will die twice, not just once, but twice. And the book of Revelation puts it this way in chapter 20, verse 13. At the end of all things, the sea will give up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades give up the dead who are in them. And they're judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. And death and Hades themselves were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. He or she will face the second death. Some people will die twice because they are not faithful to Jesus, because they don't trust him and then live faithfully with him. They will be thrown into the place that is reserved for death and Hades and Satan, the lake of fire. Instead of eternal life, they will face eternal suffering and death, hell itself, the place where God's blessings are not known. But Jesus says, if you remain faithful, no matter what you suffer, even to the point of suffering the first death, then you don't need to fear the second death. Your name's written in the book of life, friend, because you remain faithful right up to the end. And so don't fear this. You have eternal life to look forward to. And one Christian who knew this well in Smyrna, you'll know his name, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, who was killed. I'm going to show you his final words. These were the words he said, just as the the Jewish community brought the wood and the fire and he was being tied to the stake. They asked him, well, they offered him the chance to recant his Christian faith. Say, if you just deny it all, we'll untie you now and you can go free. Here's what he said. 80 and six years I have served him, talking about Jesus. I've served him 86 years and he's done me no wrong. He's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Now, isn't that some perspective there? I don't think I'd be able to put two words together if, if I've got fire right in my face, but what a perspective. This life isn't all there is, friends. See, on the one hand, those who, who compromise now may well face hell later, right? But on the other hand... There's fire that burns just for a time, but on the other side is eternal life. Whatever we face in this life, nothing compared to what God has in store for those who remain faithful. So be faithful, brother or sister in Christ. You will suffer. You will. You will suffer for your faith. Can you accept it? You need to accept it. What's your response to suffering? This is a moment to reflect. I think this is why Jesus gives us these passages. It's a moment to, to look inside and go, how do I respond when, when I am faced with the, the challenge of suffering for my Christian faith? Do I compromise? Do I try to avoid it? Do I try to wriggle out from under it? Do I panic? Do I blame others? Withdraw? Complain? Fight back? In one sense... All of those words are synonyms, right? They're, they're synonyms for the word fear. That's what it looks like when fear controls someone. But Jesus says, don't fear, instead be faithful. 
Suffering will come, but Jesus knows. And he's in control. And he'll be with you in it. And he'll test you through it. And he'll grow you because of it. And after it, he has the reward of eternal life and joy in his presence. So friends, keep clinging to Jesus. He's good. He's only ever good. And in finishing, I want you just to imagine if if a whole church of us really, really, really stuck at doing that. And I can see us, like even the point that we are in the world right now, I can see us starting to do that and I can see signs of this. But, but as things continue to heat up and the pressure comes on us and the temperature keeps rising, imagine if we keep meeting it with this kind of response, not letting fear control us, but rather being faithful. Imagine that. Imagine a whole church of people supporting each other doing that. Picture what it would look like to the world around us, even those who hate us. Even those who want to make us cop it, silence us, harm us. Imagine what that would show them. You see, we we might look like the bad guys at the moment. This is just a social observation. We might look like the bad guys, but the day's coming where people are going to change again, right? This is a temporary time in the culture of the world. The day's coming when those who hate Jesus and live for themselves, they're going to get crushed by the weight of life without God, aren't they? It's not sustainable. It can't really work. And Stephen McAlpine, the author of Being the Bad Guys, the the book from before, he reckons there's actually going to be a tsunami, like a giant wave of people that are going to wash up on the shores of the church because they've just been crushed by the weight of this this godless life. And what will they find when they wash up on our shores? You know, if we find them or they find us, they realise Jesus is the answer, what will they see? Will they see a a sort of huddled puddle of, of Christians who have compromised on their faith and who've avoided suffering as much as they can? Will they they find, you know, like an angry mob of culture warriors that just want to fight for their rights all the time? Neither of those things is going to actually save those people. They're going to run a mile. They're going to find something else. But what if they found a church full of faithful disciples who, for the joy set before them, endured the suffering? Who held together as they held to Jesus, who stuck their head up, even if it meant losing it, who, even while the world came with wood and fire, held out grace and truth and the hope of the gospel. What if they found that? That's worth giving everything for, isn't it? That's why I'm here. I'll give my life for that. But we need the Lord's help, don't we? So how about we pray to him? Lord, these are weighty things that we've talked about this morning. They're not easy things. And I know that you have ordained such a time as this for this passage to come up for us. Um, I know that some people here, Lord, are going to be copying it in various ways. And I know that that some people here are not and need to lift the game. Uh, Lord, I pray that whatever each heart and each mind needs to hear from you today, from this passage, through your spirit, through the word, that you would press it upon them. Press it upon me, Lord. Press it upon us as a whole church. And help us, Lord, to be those who, in the power of of the Spirit and in the strength given by your grace, don't compromise, but keep going on faithfully, trusting Jesus, following him, sticking with him. 
Lord, we pray that as we do that as a church, it might be a powerful witness to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper now. So I'll ask the helpers, please, to come and distribute the elements. Uh, this is for all baptised believers, uh, all of those who currently trust in Jesus, who are clinging to him in faith and walking faithfully with him.